You're listening to Scorched. A raw, real, and unfiltered podcast about drag racing and motorsports. Hosted by the man willing to burn it all down. And now, the man himself, E3 Extreme's own Damon Steinke. This episode of Scorched brought to you by Menser Motorsports, Classic Graphics, MacFab Beadlocks, and Garrett Turbos. Make sure to support those companies that are supporting the Scorched podcast. Welcome to the latest episode of Scorched. Here with Mark Menser from Menser Motorsports. Welcome. Welcome. So, in case in case you guys can't notice, in my we're, house. we're both kind of sweating our asses off. We just got back from the horse barns, and it's, what, like 164 degrees outside? It's hot as hell. It's, it's ridiculous. And we've even got the air conditioning on, and it's still, uh, yeah, it's still warm in here. It is. So, Mark, we have so much to talk about. For those that don't know Mark, <laughs> Mark is the, uh, the owner of Menser Motorsports, but... What else do you, I mean, what don't you do? I guess we could start with what don't you do, but you seem to have your hand in everything. Yeah, we have a few things going on. A few. Uh, so, for those that don't know, Mark owns a farm and also we, dabbles in horses. I don't know if dabble is the yeah, right Yeah, I was going to say, can we even use the word we, dabble at this point? Uh, we, we, we raise beef and we raise thoroughbred racehorses and... Um, yeah, so that's that's a full-time job in and of itself, just to keep the horses going. So you do all of that on top of running, I mean, arguably one of the most successful shock companies in all of drag racing to begin with. Yeah. Where do you find time to, I mean... Well, I mean, first of all, I have a wonderful staff at the, at the motorsports company, so those guys help. I mean... Craig, John, Rick, um, Candace, it, they, they can run that place um, and, it, and it will go on cruise control without me being there um, to oversee and micromanage them. They're, they're good self-starters, really like self-motivated people that can manage without me. So they make it easy. I can go in in the morning, we can go over all the work orders, we can kind of figure out what their schedule is gonna be. Um, you know, I can, fill in all the blanks and um, run out and get to the farm. And of course, like people who don't know, my house, my shop, the farm, the horse farm, everything uh-huh. is in like a four mile circle. So it doesn't take long. I can zip from one place to the other. And oftentimes that's kind of my day is just a big rotation of going from one place to the other to the other. And for those that don't around. believe him, I've been in the truck when we've gone to every single place all it's all in the day. same day. Yeah. yeah and then you know so they'll they'll get started and they'll you know they'll start assembling shocks and do do their part and i'll zip back through and we'll look at dyno files and go over stuff and make decisions about purchase orders and raw materials and you know i'll pick up a few tech calls and try to catch my call list up on all that sort of stuff and then right back out the door and off to something else speak of raw materials we've noticed a lot of people have noticed within the industry the ridiculous and i've never seen it this bad before in my life uh in over 30 years in the industry but the ridiculous amount of 
everybody being on back order for everything. Yep. How has that affected Mentor Motorsports? Um, well, we've, we've had supply chain issues with getting parts. Um, like numerous times we've run AFCO out of, out of the parts that we need for assembling shocks. Um, you know, the other parts of that, like the spring company, um, so we make our own coil springs. Um, we, we were notified in May that we had to figure out and forecast how much of each wire diameter we were going to need to last us for the remainder of the year and Q1 of 2022. And we had to place a purchase order to consume that much so that we could lock in a price. So we essentially had to buy a year's worth of every part number that we that we manufacture oh, wow. ahead of time to lock in the price um, and to avoid uh, a delay. You know, they said, we're gonna shut down our order book. We're not gonna take any more orders. We're so backed up um, and we're so bottlenecked. We're just gonna shut the order book down and we're not taking any more orders until first quarter of 2022. So, I mean, that's thousands of coil springs, you know, to put that in perspective. It's massive. Now, for the business, though, with everything that's happened over the last 16 to 18 months, you guys have managed to still stay strong throughout, Yeah. would you say? Yeah, we've been busy. And, and I think, from what I understand, um, conversations that I've had with other uh, retailers, manufacturers, and whatnot, all the shops that we do business with, people have stayed very busy throughout this. Like there was, there was a lot of pent up demand. I mean, people didn't go on vacation. People weren't able to get out and do things. A lot of the stuff they wanted to do, concerts and beach trips and uh, you know vacations overseas, they couldn't do any of that stuff. So they stayed at home and they bought shit for their race car. Now, you and I have talked a lot and we both know the industry can be very frustrating at times. <laughs> Whether it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different reasons for that. What's in, because obviously you've got your hand in so much other stuff, but you are still the face of Menser Motorsports and always will be. What do you find is, I guess, the most frustrating thing on a, on a regular basis? I mean, everybody's got that one thing once in a while, but is there something just on a daily basis that, you're just like, out of the hell with this shit. I, I don't think it's, well, I I experience it in motorsports, but I don't think it's just motorsports. I think in general, um, being in business for yourself, especially in a service-oriented uh, industry, which, you know, let's face it, people buy shocks from us, but what they really want is service. They want the technical support. They want information. So we're not different than any other service provider when it comes to that. So I think, yes, I experience in motorsports the same thing that every other service provider does. And that is this like Amazon Prime culture of like instant gratification motherfuckers that think that like the whole world revolves around their 3.30 in the morning message they sent you on Facebook Messenger mm -hmm. while you're asleep. Yeah. You know, and you're some sort of a, you know, you're a motherfucker because you didn't answer them at 335, yeah. you know. Um, so, and I just, I don't, just because as a, a species we've developed technology that allows us to have access to each other 24 hours a day doesn't mean it's a good idea. 
Like everybody needs reset time. Everybody needs a little bit of breathing time. People need to settle the fuck down and relax. Like, I mean, everybody out here, myself and every other manufacturer shop that I know of is doing the best that they can right now to keep up with fucked up lead times, supply chain problems, labor shortages, all kinds of other bullshit. Um, and like, we're doing the best we can. I mean, so like, just cause you can message us at two in the morning doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you, you should. should. Like, you know, and if you call the shop during the day and nobody answers the phone, you know, we're busy as fuck. Like, yeah. we're gonna answer it. We're gonna call you back. If we missed you, leave a detailed message. Calling and hanging up four fucking times in a row does not constitute reaching out and making contact. Let me make that very clear. <laughs> like, leave a detailed message. Be fucking patient. It's a race car part. We're not curing fucking cancer here. Yeah. Like, relax. Now, you've been in the motorsports industry. What some people that may be new to listening to this or watching this don't know is you kind of your background was in dirt yes dirt track racing yep. long before Way you before. ever got into the drag racing that's right and kind of give everybody a background on you know you getting involved in dirt track racing and then going into drag racing from there well i mean i was born in a dirt track racing my granddad was one of the first 50 members of nascar so we had dirt late models before I was born, my dad and my granddad and uncles, they were racing those things. Um, my dad, I, my dad sent me a picture the other day, uh, a clipping from the newspaper, November of 1981 of his car in the lineup at Dublin Speedway down here, you know, for a hundred lap uh, Sunday afternoon feature race. I mean, so I was, I was three years old mm -hmm. to put that in perspective. So I, it was kind of in that set of circumstances that I was brought into motorsports you know going with my dad to the shop working on the car um, being dragged to racetracks all over the place and so as soon as I was old enough to to get myself there you know without having to catch a ride with mom I was at the racetrack you know with somebody crewing helping hanging around um, just I had to have my hands on these things now the shock technology that you use in drag racing, yeah. a lot of that comes from the dirt track side? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, as far as uh, shock absorber technology and uh, shock absorber literacy, like uh, the circle track guys are decades ahead of what's going on in drag racing. I mean, there's some interesting technology in drag racing as far as, you know, um, what I'd call like gadgets and gizmos and air dumps and electric shocks and um, things of that nature. But if you want to get right down to like well-built, well-tuned shock absorbers and and chassis setup, you know, the, the circle track guys are way far ahead of what's going on in drag racing. Now, in the years that you've been doing the drag racing side of it, obviously you have, your company has been known uh, heavily in the radial world and sure. has proved over the last decade plus um, that your stuff works um, with the radial stuff. Have you noticed outside of the radial world a pushback from the kind of old school mentality because they don't think that the technology that will work with the radials will work on 
big tire car type setups? Well, I think what we've kind of seen, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say we've necessarily been pigeonholed, but we kind of been pigeonholed. Well, that's the radial shock company. Yeah. If you want to put radials on, you have to call them. There's no choice. Um, and that's not necessarily true. I'm sure there's people who haul ass on radials that don't run our shocks, you know. Um, but it doesn't, you know, a shock absorber is a shock absorber. And unless you're, like, locking the thing down with air or doing something mechanically to change the behavior of the car, it is a passive fluid damper. It reacts to what the fuck you tell it to do. And, and that is where you put the forelink. Um, the way that you set up the weight bias on the car and the way you manage power. So a shock is a shock is a shock. If it's valved correctly for the setup that's in the car, you can make it work on big tires. You can revalve the shock and set the car up and make it work on 28 10.5s, 33 10.5Ws, 275s, 235s, 295s, a fucking space saver donut if you set the car up right. It doesn't you know it doesn't make a fuck what manufacturer or brand it is it has to do with did your shock guy set the shock up and valve the shock uh, properly for the four link setup the weight and balance the way you're going to power manage that car you know now when somebody orders a set of shocks from you that's all the that's all information that you require from them that's right as far as weight balance and Right. Everything like that and what their use is for, what tire they're using, things like that. Is that all used to help you determine what spring setup, what valve setup, everything like yes. that? We're going to figure out, based on that information, we generally give the customer, a, a, we valve the shock and then we give them a baseline shock setting. We pick out a spring rate, usually... Um, our customers do like a four corner package with us. Mm-hmm. So it'll be rear shocks, front shocks, or front struts. So we pick out spring rates to match all of that stuff. And then, you know, we, we generally go a step further with them and kind of give them an idea of what they should be looking for as far as a setup. You know, a, an idea where your four link bar should be or how much pinion angle and what ladder bar angle you need to be at, where you need to be with weight bias. What, what crank center line, you know, when you're setting your front ride height, how high should the engine be off the ground for various applications? Um, it, all of these things go in hand in hand. You know, I can build you the exact same set of shocks that, that uh, Daniel Ferris went 349 with, and you can put them on your car, and you might not go 3.49 feet ever because the, the shock absorber it's not the final arbiter of whether the thing goes down the racetrack or not. So what I hear a lot of people at the track is we can't afford to be able to buy a Menser product. Like if we're talking about bracket guys or index class racers, whatever it may be, would, in your opinion, it is somebody going to benefit or what is the huge benefit besides obviously the customer service that I've seen every time I'm around you, these guys that buy these, you know, and I'm guilty of it 20 years ago, the first set of shocks I ever bought were strange 10 way adjustables for the back of my Mustang for a few hundred bucks or whatever it was. 
what advantages am I going to get? It, let's say I'm running a 6.0 or 7.0 index car. Uh, you know, if buying a set of Mensers versus buying, you know, some cheap other set. I won't name any names. I have some in mind, but yeah. Well, I mean, there's... You're not going to call up brand X mm -hmm. and give them all this information about what you're doing and get someone on the phone that sets up race cars for a living, that goes to the racetrack and tests and tunes and races for a living. You're going to get a salesman and he's going to pick a part number out of a catalog and it's going to be that company's best guess at a valve code that's going to hit like the biggest shotgun blast pattern of shit that they can hit with that single valve code. It's not profitable to build 200 different valve codes. It's a pain in the ass. We do it every day. It's, it's not easy. It's, it's difficult. It's complicated. Um, and there's a lot of brain work and a lot of, uh, you know, physical, like actual manual labor that goes into doing that. So when you call them, you're going to get a salesman. He's going to pick a, something. He's going to got a little table in there, by the way, in case you don't know. And it's got one set of parameters here and another set of parameters here. And you give him two of those and he takes them and finds out where they meet. And there's the part number. And he's going to sell you that part number. Now, on Friday night at nine o'clock, when you're going into third round of qualifying and you're trying to get your shit dialed in and your 60 foot's been all over the map all day and you can't figure it out, um, you're not going to be able to get that guy on the phone. No. He's not going to be available via text message or email. And even if he is, he's probably just a salesman and he's not going to have a real good... No <laughs> Comprehension of Comprehension what, the fuck, of what the fuck you're trying to ask for. And hey, it might not even be the shock. You know, that might not have anything to do with it. It might be something totally unrelated. Who knows? I mean, I've, I've found that in tech supporting shock absorbers that I've tech support a whole lot more shit than shocks. And most of the time, the shocks had very little to do with, sometimes nothing to do with what what's going on with the customer. But... Our availability, our customer support, um, the fact that the product is built specific to your application, um, and the fact that it will repeat. You know, they're, these things are they're built to pretty tight tolerances. Our validation parameters for the valve codes are very tight. So if I tell my guys that I want a specific force number, I'm not willing to compromise that force number um, in the valve code more than say 1% or a half a percent on certain valve codes. And we're not talking about very much. We're saying if that was in a circle track car, that's not enough for the driver to feel it. He would never know the difference. And the car probably wouldn't know the difference. Um, so you, you don't necessarily get that with brand X, whoever that is. Now all the shocks that you guys do, every single set of shocks that gets ordered, goes through a shock dyno yeah they are for... every single pair is hand built like they show up in a they're we pull parts it's a box full of parts that bar, box full of parts goes with a work order to a workstation either rick craig mike or myself assembles them by hand charges them up puts them on the dyno 
validates them. If they don't hit the force numbers that they're supposed to, they come back apart and we tweak the valve code, we move shims, we do whatever we need to do in there um, until we get the force numbers we're looking for. Then we run them on the dyno, validate them, put the springs on them, assemble them, box them up, and ship them. So, in layman's terms, Menser Motorsports would be considered more of a boutique versus a Walmart. Absolutely. So your brand X is that you know you're you're typically looking at through Summit or Jags that have oh if you've got a '79 to '93 Mustang you're buying this. Yep. That's kind of like the Walmart type. And no, I'm not talking. I'm not dogging on Walmart, no. but the mass but production the, side of it. And there's like there's a there's a case for inexpensive shock absorbers. There are plenty of racers out there that know their car and know their shit good enough that they can race with whatever you give them because they know how to tune their shit. They know what's going on. They understand when they make a four link move, what it's gonna do. They know what, how to adjust their shocks. They know when they move weight, how that's gonna affect the car. They understand tire pressure, gear ratio, uh, torque converter, power management, all that kind of stuff. And for those guys, um, you know, at, at certain power levels and at certain ET levels, they're probably not going to see some drastic value in what I offer. But if you are not that guy and you're not sure about those things and you don't have a tuner, mm -hmm. um, and especially if you're at a higher horsepower level, then you're trying to get down into some of the faster ET range, it's, it costs you more to not spend the money. And not necessarily with us. I mean, with somebody who knows what the fuck they're doing yeah. that can guide you through the process. So, outside of the drag racing world, because you do so much outside of this, <laughs> I, want, I want to go, it, well, and here's the thing. I know people have read some articles that have been written about you. Um, I've even I've even done articles before. You and I have been friends for years. I kind of want to delve into the outside of drag racing. When you were younger, what, what a lot of people don't realize, and I always enjoy coming here because it's I learn something new every time I come here. You have, and when I say you've had your hand in so many different things you grew up playing the guitar at a very high level yes you are one of the most i don't want to say underrated because it's more unknown <laughs> as far as photography goes and you're into and, and you've traveled the world you're into um uh, astrology or astronomy. astronomy sorry astrology is that other bullshit that nobody believes in the astrology <laughs> taking taking photos astrophotography and, and, and things like that how do you I mean you're in so many different things and you excel at so many different things so let's talk about the guitar stuff for for you started at a very young age with that did you not like four years old and, and I played, I mean, I was working as a professional musician before I had, I say professional, I mean, I was getting paid to play music before I had a driver's license. My dad took me to nightclubs and literally had to like sign a waiver and sit in the back and chaperone me so that I could play. 
<laughs> and then he would take me. And like my dad was, he would have to get up the next morning and go to work, you know. Mm -hmm. But he, he was, he was very proud of that. He enjoyed it. It was fun. And then, and you know, that kind of progressed. I mean, by the time I was in my senior year of high school, um, I was on the road with the Neal brothers, BB um, King, Bobby Bland, Patty Labelle. You've, I mean, we sit here and we could talk about we could talk about drag racing, and we do that all the time. We could sit here and talk about that forever, but we're talking about as a teenager, you were playing with some of the biggest musical acts in the world. Yeah, and at again at a very high level and you left that you you what happened life for me has always been this sort of natural progression through things and um like learning and figuring it out and solving the puzzle is the great challenge once the puzzle's kind of solved um the some of the mystery and the challenge goes away and and in a way like it it just it gets a little stale um with the music i i think that i came to the realization that traveling being on the road doing all that kind of stuff just was not going to be what i wanted to do and then i turned right around and Dude, did it with race yes. cars so it was just a you know talk about your all-time biggest backfires <laughs> just, but 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 I, you know it was always about the puzzle. I love the music, and I, to this day I still play. I still stay in touch with my musician friends, um, and I love music. It's just not. It, w it was just not a doable lifestyle for me. Do you miss playing in front of crowds? Though? Yes, God, yes. Who anybody that's ever done it? Listen, if you can't, there's no way to experience it. You know, without doing it, I can't explain it to you. Like Salimi, you know, he and I talk about it all the time. I mean, the fucking, you, you get so charged up. I mean, and for me, like I played lead guitar and, and I worked with some really cool acts and we did like the blues festivals and stuff. And then there was quite a bit of focus on what the lead guitar player was doing. This mm -hmm. was right in the wake of the death of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Then every fucking white teenager that could play a blues lick was like trying to be the next Stevie Ray Vaughan. So there was a lot of, you know, to put put it in perspective, like the, when I was playing music, um, was right at the time that Kenny Wayne Shepherd and Johnny Lang um, were coming of age. And as a matter of fact, one of the guys that played drums in one of my bands ended up being the main drummer for Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Really? Yes. Um, Sam went to work for Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and I went off with the Neil Brothers and went on the road with them. Uh, Joe Bonamassa was like, he's a few years older than us, mm -hmm. but we were all around at the same time, knew of, knew each other. So, Do you still listen to a lot of, yeah. like, Kenny Wayne Shepherd just came out with a new album last year, and it, I thought it was even better than yeah. what he had done. It's because like he's on maturing. The, yes, like it's, on the old 90s album with the mature. blue on black. And, he's maturing. He's, he's, at some point you realize as a guitarist that, there's more to life than being a Stevie Ray Vaughan clone. Mm -hmm. And that's what all those kids started off as. And then you had like old guys managing them who said, that's the way to make money. And deep inside, you don't want to do that. You want to grow into your own musician. And it takes some time and you need to make some money and get control of your own professional career 
as a musician before you have the freedom to grow into who you really want to be. And you'll find that with a lot of bands, you know, that, that some bands start off really fucking awesome and they're like fully formed and then the commercialization of them like spoils the, the mixture. Um, and then some bands start off, you know, commercialized and then they set themselves free and then yeah. they kind of go the direction they want to go. And most people would argue that the former is much more likely than the latter. But See, but and I've the, noticed like a lot of bands, Green Day, Red Hot Chili Peppers, things that were real kind of punk-ish, yep. real musical bands before commercial success. Yep. And once commercial success hit, it's like the same four chords that... And, and I think somebody was on a part talk of, show. Part of it, too, is when their 40s hit. Like, yeah. Like, I can tell you from personal experience, you can't go that fucking hard when you get old <laughs> and fat. You just can't do it. Like, <laughs> Is there anything that you learned it during your time doing music that you still carry with you daily that helps you, whether it's in racing or any other part of life? You'll probably have to edit this out of the podcast, but yes, when you are 17 years old and all you want to do is get the fuck out of here and go to bed or you've got homework to do and there's a drunk guy who's like 55 and he's hanging on you, you're the best guitar player I've ever fucking heard, man. I fucking love you, man. And you have to smile and like that. And So it's like a Saturday night at the drag strip. It's just the same thing. Like, I... Don't give me, I mean, I love my job, but like I've walked 37 miles. My fucking feet hurt. I had to take a leak for the last four hours. And some guy just chased <laughs> me down in the staging lanes with a laptop while I'm on the way to the portage on. And he's like, hey, can, can you, you look, look at my this shit? data real quick? And, and you know what? I, I do. I look at that and I try to help them. And then I go take care of whatever I need to do. Do you find it difficult to say no? Yeah. I, Especially when hardest, you're at the track? It's the hardest thing to do. When I'm at the racetrack, I just don't say no. I stay there until the job's done. And now, after transitioning from, and I'm, it, there may be a time gap here, but after you left the music scene, kind of put that behind you, at some point you decided photography. What? How, how did photography come about? Because obviously music is... Well, an artist thing and so is photography well the visual arts was always appealing um and photography was something that i'd played with uh in film you know not digital but yeah. film photography it was like that in the spare room where you're saying that shot of the tiger in the snow that's shot with film mm -hmm. in like 1998 or something you know so it's old as shit um so i'd always dabbled with it and then it was just sort of the the thing that I had an interest in it and I wanted to go more that direction and learn how to do that, solve the mystery, so to speak. So I just, I went that way. So and, expound on that though, because when you say, well, I got in, he's trying to be modest about it is what he's doing because he's, he doesn't talk a lot about his photography because he's <laughs> super, he's super critical of his photography. This man has been to where Africa yes. and you've been, in places that other people, other photographers, dream about going to be able to photograph. Well, so I'd been shooting, and and this was it was interesting because the the trip to 
my first trip overseas to do photography specific um you know i just i'm i wanted to go to africa that was always a bucket list sort of thing i mean you and i have talked yeah. about that so i i was doing a, an africa studies class in college and a friend of mine um she's now a dear friend of mine but at the time i had no idea who she was so the whole thing was to to learn to reach out make friends get a pen pal you know exchange ideas and learn about other people's culture this was like at the very beginning of you know internet like chat rooms and all that sort of stuff um at the end of the 90s early early 2000s whatever um so i met a I met a girl that ran a uh internet cafe and she was the owner of an internet cafe so one of the at the time you know it was the where you went in in that particular neighborhood in nairobi if you wanted to get on the internet and send an email or do any kind of internet business anything that required the internet um so it turned out that you know she had a friend that she went to school with a primary school mate that had a safari company that had um you could rent a truck and a driver and do like you know your own guided tour but not on the thing with all the other people yeah so i started hatching this plan in my head this was i just read like the world's most dangerous places or one of those books you know one of those books that everybody always reads i'm like you know what i think i can do this so i did i started emailing like anybody that i could find an email address for their uh public relations department or their marketing department to see if they needed any photos of anything in East Africa, period. I don't give a shit what it is. You want a picture of a rhino? I'll get it. You you know, you need a picture of this building or traffic in downtown Nairobi or Addis Ababa, or you want a picture of like the coast of Zanzibar? I don't give a shit. Whatever it is, if you'll like throw me a bone, I'll 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 go do this. Mm-hmm. So I ran I mean this was probably really naive at the time, but people started emailing back. And I got, I put together a list of, of uh, assignments to do. And I did some really neat stuff for like travel and leisure. I even shot some stuff for the Carter Foundation, for Jimmy Carter's foundation. Um, so I got all this stuff together and I got enough money together to like book a trip. And I called this girl up and I'm like, look, you know, I've pulled all this shit off. I don't wanna do this trip. And she said, no problem, I'll get it arranged. So we book like a driver and a guide. She says, I'm gonna take two weeks and I'll be your translator. She found a lady in her neighborhood that had a room to rent and I rented a room. And like, mind you, like the the truck, the driver, the translator, the room, all this shit together cost maybe like 600 bucks US. Like- And what year was this? 06. Okay. Yep, 06 was my. I spent like a good, a huge amount of time over there, 06 and 07. Um, so she arranges all this stuff and I like book a plane ticket and like an open-ended ticket and just got on a plane and flew Emirates and landed in Nairobi. And here's my friend that I've never seen in person, but I knew her from her internet cafe. She's there at the airport with her sister and they pick me up and deposit me at this lady's house. And like our adventure starts at 9 a.m you know or 6 a.m the next morning or whatever it was like i had no fucking plan like no plan how long were you over there the first time over a month a month yeah so you put all of this essentially 
what we would call cold calling people, yes. but via email, drumming up all this, all this interest. Now, were you sending them copies of work that you had done before, or yes, yeah, I had I had some some work from stateside work. Um, I was doing some commercial work at the time, not anything really special. I was working with my family's trucking company, so I had steady income. Mm -hmm. I was able to do the stuff on the side, so it wasn't really stressful. Um, but I'd done some commercial work, and it was you know easy enough to send a few things over, and you know I guess they said fuck it, we'll take a chance. And these and and so you put all this together, yeah. spent over a month in a country that you had never been to. Yep. And you don't know any of the language. You don't know anybody there except for this person who you had never met before. There's a there's a sort of a backstory to my obsession with Africa, that that kind of goes back like even further than that to when I was a little boy working and being around the family trucking company. So there's a guy named William Palmer, and he is he is Rhodesian or you know now they would call it Zimbabwe. It's okay. been Zimbabwe since. Mugabe and the revolution um, there, but at, he, he calls himself Rhodesian because he left before it became Zimbabwe. But he, um, he grew up there. His family's, you know, second or third generation farmers there. And he told me these fantastic stories about being in the Rhodesian army and farming and growing up there as a boy. And I mean, it was just unbelievable. I was absolutely in love with the place. He romanticized everything about the place. And this guy, I mean, in his deep voice with his South African, you know, Rhodesian accent, I mean, he would talk about, you know, being out in the bush and coming across these the little villages, you know, and the school kids would come out and sing. And, and then he would, you know, well up with tears because it was so emotional. And I was like, fuck, I've got to go. So and that started, this was, I mean, I was young, but that started an obsession with, like, learning about it. And I mean, if you go in the library in there, you'll see that there's there's an entire section dedicated to Africa and the history of all the colonies and the you know how they became independent and then sort of how things have been destabilized and where things went wrong and and um, you know all that sort of stuff. Now, in your trips to Africa, though, was that? Hey, we've talked about um, your other photographer friend that then eventually you guys were stateside with. <laughs> so Yeah, it was a great, this is a cool story. So I'm coming home from being in Kenya and Tanzania and I get like, I got stuck in New York at, um, at JFK. There was a delay and a delay and a delay and a delay and then finally um, the weather broke or whatever and they start boarding the plane and I get on it and it's um, we're just flying from JFK down to Raleigh mm -hmm. so It's not a long flight and it's one of these small little, you know Puddle jumping Canada yeah. air fucking, you know, I don't know Minnesota whatever bullshit airline So I get in there and I'm like I, I'm tired. I'm dirty. There was a fucking riot and like they set some shit on fire the day before I left and I didn't get like barely got out of town. This was in the lead up to the like 07 elections and there was quite a bit of political strife uh, between ODM um, and the Kikuyus and it was just a shit, shit show. Anyway, um, I'm tired. I'm dirty. I'm stinky. Like I want to get the fuck home. Now I'm stuck <laughs> at JFK for hours and I finally get on the plane, this puddle jumping like shitbox 
and it's a basically a full flight and I'm sitting there and the seat beside me is empty and I'm thinking finally there is a God like, <laughs> you know, we all pray for that yes. empty seat next to us and they are like getting ready to close the door and I feel the plane shake and hear somebody getting on the plane and it's this really like massive man this big huge fucking man with his long beautiful locks of hair and his bags and all of his gear and all of his stuff and he comes right to my you know and i'm thinking to myself mother my life you know <laughs> so he sits down and he's just jovial happy-go-lucky guy and he sticks out his hand raul rubiera jr and it's it's his dad is raul rubiera to work for the Herald and National Geographic. And I'm like, you've got to be fucking shitting me. So before we get back to Raleigh, like... So as soon as he introduced himself, you knew exactly who yeah, and he and his family and were. And we start sharing pictures. We start looking. The laptops are out. You know how this <laughs> yep. goes. And, um, and it, you know, just like it developed into a wonderful friendship. And, and um, like, we worked together, did some, some work together, shot some commercial gigs together um you know he built a fantastic firm and a wonderful studio here um the whole the funny part of the story is that he was coming to Fayetteville like his dad had basically uh retired and moved up here took a part-time job with the paper his mother was here um there was a family connection and so they came to Fayetteville like this beautiful house out in Cedar Creek you know now, do and, you guys still keep in touch? Yeah. Yeah. Is he still doing oh a lot God, of... Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, his work is fantastic. Absolutely. When we talk about musicians maturing, his work as a photographer is just... Phenomenal. It's phenomenal, yeah. And, and from somebody who's seen a lot of Mark's work, for him to say that somebody is phenomenal is, is, Ra is, is an a, understatement. No, I mean... But, yeah, the, you know, he's... I was coming home from Africa to put... He was... He'd been there photographing the Emmys. Okay. So he was, you know, red carpet shots and all kinds of crap. <laughs> he's the dude's a fucking he's a stud, man. When did you start getting into the um the the interest in the galaxies and the stars and uh, photographing all of that? Were you doing that when you were in Africa too? Not no, I didn't do any astrophotography there. Um, I mean, I probably have some shots of the southern hemisphere, Milky Way, some long exposure stuff like, but no, nothing like that because there was totally impractical to try to move that kind of gear down there. And I didn't. I was a broke bitch at the time. I didn't have the kind of gear that it takes to really do that on mm -hmm. the level that I wanted to do it. Um, but no, I mean, when I was growing up, though, my um, my interest as far as education was aerospace engineering so always had an affinity for space the space program rockets um, the stars physics uh, quantum physics astrophysics cosmology all that kind of stuff so that that's that's always been there it's just been a uh, it's paralleled everything I've ever done um, you know the engineering side of it has always kind of been interesting to me with so because so once, once I'd learned photography, yeah. the natural, you know, uh, the first thing, that, you know, I always, you know, I've got a telescope and I've got this camera and I know that people do this, so I'm going to figure <laughs> it the fuck out. And then that goes for, you know, from DSLR, um, astrophotography to like the picture of the horse head on the wall over there, which is a 
235 minute CCD uh, multiple exposure with filters. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like it's like a KAF 8300 sensor, um, and it's got a filter wheel. And so you use Nebulosity or one of the other softwares, um, and you program this thing to take multiple exposures, um, and you stack those exposures, and you do this with all the different, you can do it with a light filter, with uh, RBG filters, and you can use filters to filter out specific light waves that are reflected from different elements. So if you wanna do like hydrogen alpha, um, so you can put a filter in there, and it will filter out light that's that is reflected from hydrogen alpha in that emission or reflection nebula and so that's how you kind of pull the detail out of those dusty clouds of star stuff i want to get back to the star stuff in just a second but since we're on the topic of photography and obviously my day job is photographing drag races <laughs> he already knows where i'm going with this <laughs> Because you, you, you guys, don't want, you don't want me to. to no, nope, you, you guys don't want me to go down that road. You guys, I, I've gone down it a hundred <laughs> times before. I've even told a lot of. What are your thoughts? And it doesn't have to be specific to any genre. But what are your thoughts about the photography that you see in the drag racing industry? And I'm not talking, listen, I'm not necessarily talking to Mark gets on my ass all the time. He doesn't always like my edits either. But in general, you and I have both seen a theme. Oh, God. Uh, especially with some of the younger photographers. Um, we call it a certain preset. And I'm not going to throw that photographer under the bus because he is, he does, I've seen some of his other no, work he's, and it's he's very good. Well, the, the issue is, is that there's nothing wrong with being the guy who edits your shit that way and has that artistic vision if that's your artistic vision and you you know you came up with that if that's the way you truly see things but if you as a photographer or someone who calls yourself a photographer strike out every morning right on down that wall with your shit and you got the same lens as everybody else and that motherfucker is stuck on 1.2 aperture and never moves off of that and you shoot the same shit that everybody else does and you edit it the same way everybody else does i mean what are you doing where's your creative vision you know i want to see the picture you take what what's where's your art at i don't want to see you out there trying to imitate what everybody else did it's, uh, and it, i mean if you know the for for lack of a better way to put it and i don't mean to be cruel because i know basically all the photographers yeah and i like most of these kids they are they're out there busting their ass and there are some of them that are incredibly talented at what they do mm -hmm. um so i'm a way more talented digital artist than they are photographers yes. if you gave them a film body and kicked them out in the middle of a war zone i don't think they'd know what fucking no. i mean they'd be lost as last year's easter eggs but um like at the end of the day like the the thing is so oversaturated because everybody that can afford to go on amazon and get a starter pack with two kit lenses shows up at the racetrack they've already got like a logo and stickers made and fucking t-shirts and they need branding partners to jump on board for these next three events and they got some fucking photographer's photo logo that's like this goddamn big that they stick in the middle of the picture um i mean 
it's so competitive. It's so saturated. It's like throwing a scrap of meat out there in a bunch of dogs and they're all just dog fighting to see who can get the most likes and shares and they're such a fucking hurry to like post it up post i gotta get it up got it i gotta, gotta post it up post it up like settle the fuck down go out here and create something create some art mm-hmm. or or Take a picture from an angle that we haven't seen before use a lens that everybody else doesn't have in their bag um, find a new perspective. Tell me a story. I want when I look at a photograph. I want. I'm. I'm asking you, with one image, to convey all of the emotions that you felt during that moment. If the moment wasn't worthy of capturing, if there was no emotions, if it's just a dry image of a car you know, edited with the clarity cranked up to make it look cool. Why the fuck publish it? What's the point? And I guess coming from a background of more, um, you know, wildlife and then humanitarian and documentary type photography, and then slowly transitioning to more art photography, um, which I seem to have to fucking twist your arm to even do, but yeah. But, but I look, I look for that, you know, and um, and that's what you know. If I had, if there was anything, you know, my critique on the whole thing is just that um, that it gets a bit stale when you're scrolling through your feed, and if you don't look at if if you blocked out where the logo is, um, you wouldn't tells know who, who shot. Is, I'm not sure who shot this. So is it photographer A, B, or C? I don't know because they they've edited them the same. They took the same angle. Um, I mean, you know. I noticed that ten when I started doing multiple events a year, um, two thousand end of two thousand ten, beginning of two thousand eleven. John Four was the one that everybody wanted to emulate. Yeah, and John was very. Don't try to copy anybody else. John, John do, and I talk about that all the time. Do it your way. And don't get me wrong. John has been a huge mentor to me early on when I started. Yep. But also, explain to me, do it my way. And there was, it, everybody wanted to emulate John. I didn't want to emulate John at the time. I wanted to get to the point where my work stood on its own. Like, you can look at a John 4 photo and know, you, you know John 4 is. shot yeah. it. I wanted to get to the point with my work where when I posted photos, people knew that that was, whether I had watermarks or whatever on it. John, John and my wife are tight. Like, the, so and, and, um, and, you know, Allie, she shoots all, like, yep. wildlife and, and stuff. It's very rarely do you see much of her motorsport stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not, um, it's nothing against it. She just doesn't have a great interest in doing motorsports photography. Um, but she does she does stuff that other people she shows up with a you know a 20 millimeter yeah and, and goes something and completely stands, different than everybody else stands on the wall and everybody looks at her like she's got three heads and, yeah. and she put, she hands me the the laptop and shows me something and it's like my god you know that's that's incredible but everyone want, yeah but no but we all missed it we didn't see yeah. that she saw that and what john told her is you know it's okay to admire other photographers. It's okay to, to learn, um, you know, watch some YouTube tutorials, learn some stuff. Don't get to like 
following what they're doing and looking at it too much. It's like reading too much of your favorite author and then trying to be a writer. You start just emulating them. You, you, you don't have your own creative voice. And then with photography, it's the same way. If you look at what everybody else does, then you study and study and study and worship that stuff. Um, they're not taking anything away from whatever you're looking at. It's probably wonderful shit. But where's your picture? That's what I want to see. You know, like where I went to high school, this is an interesting story. There's a, a documentary on uh, Netflix, Hondros, about Chris Hondros, who was a combat photographer mm -hmm. who's a fucking legend. So Chris is an alumni of my high school. Really? He graduated a few years before I did. And by the time I picked up a camera, Chris was already a legend. But the, you know, there, there were a bunch of really fantastic um, uh, artistic and creative photographers that came out of that sort of area there. Um, and so, you know, we all looked up to those guys, you know, to like, and they were, they were off in friggin' Afghanistan and Iraq and, um, you know, Liberia and do, I mean, just, just amazing stuff that was coming out of there. It would just blow your mind. Have you noticed in talking, because you talk to other photographers besides me and you're a photographer yourself, that they, a lot of these photographers get so caught up in the, it's everything has got to be perfect. If there's a little blur, if there's a little noise, anything like then all of a sudden it becomes either overprocessed or they just think it's junk, even if it could be capturing an amazing moment. Well, and that's that's what I mean. Like you, you have to, you can only control so many things when you're taking a, a picture. Um, I mean, and so you're going to if you know, if you're technically proficient with your equipment. You're going to go for the, or you should be, trying to, to create the most correctly exposed image that you can at all times. Like, that means that your depth of field should be related to your artistic vision for the, for the image. Um, and that, you know, uh, your exposure as far as your light, your focus, all of that stuff should be to create a well-composed image. And then there's the idea of composition, which is the, you know, as Wendell Berry says, the, the camera is, the great work in photography is not knowing what to look at, it's knowing where to look from, where to place the lens, where to place that camera, where to put yourself in the perspective with which you view things. And that's the, um, I think that's kind of the, the where these, folks get mixed up is uh, you know yeah you can only control what's going on to a point and so there are times that it won't be in focus there are times that it will be blurry there's times that the light won't cooperate with the angle that you need to shoot from um, and that's where your creativity comes in handy but if again if you're capturing a moment um, the moment should overpower the composition uh, the technical yeah. aspects of the composition. Like I, some of the, if you look, and I've done this before, like you Google search Time Magazine, Time Magazine and Life Magazine growing up, yep. those, that and National Geographic were the bare, the, they were but, gold standard. But that, that was a time when those publications had the best photographers in the world. They sent them out to do a specific job and there were 
bound by extremely strict rules about what they could do. And, and mind you, most of that stuff was shot in film. So there was yeah. so little you could do in post-processing besides dodging and burning mm-hmm. um, and things like that. I mean, there wasn't a lot. There was some minor exposure manipulation on the printing side or whatever that you could do. Um, but you couldn't go in there and Photoshop somebody out. You know, you might crop an image when you when you enlarged it. Um, but they were very strict because they were held to a level of journalistic integrity that they couldn't edit those photos but so much you know most of the like if you think about war photographers yeah combat photographers say um during vietnam most of those guys didn't know what they shot they batched that those they put all those canisters of film into a batch wrapped them up dropped them off and they got shipped back here somebody would develop that stuff and the editor would go through and choose which photos to use they didn't even know what was being published until after the fact when it came out and there are photos there are not a lot of drag racing photos as a photographer that stand out to me photos that stand out to me are like the muhammad ali photo shot from above the ring the rotunda photo with the casket with the flag at the bottom of the rotunda which i watched an entire special about the amount of lighting and they snuck they weren't even actually allowed to do that um photos like that or um and they just it this just came up again recently and it always seems to come up it's one of the most well-known photos in the world the woman on the cover of Nat Geo back in like 84, 86, whatever, th- with the green eyes yes. or whatever, yep. that photo. The Afghan girl. Yes. Yep. Um, those are photos. Or like Dorothea Lange's work during the Great Depression with the, with the um, migrant immigrant yeah. mother. You know, those photographs were, those were riveting moving photographs and it's and those photo those photographers were not worried about oh there's a little bit of grain in the photo or you know this that or the other dorothea lang i'll never forget her a quote um she was looking at uh, talking to uh in her one of the documentaries about her catch a bolt of lightning or whatever um there's a photograph of a set of stair- stairs um it's like a at a pueblo somewhere out west Mm -hmm. and this set of stairs it's shot in black and white and the sun is setting and it casts this really neat shadow and it's just a portrait of these stairs and if you look down to the left there's some some trash like a a a soda can or something there and she said there are two photographers in the world for one photographer that can must absolutely be in the frame and for the other, it must absolutely not be in the frame. And there's no, and there's no compromise. No. And, there, and and I because think I know both types up, of photographers it summed it up perfectly. Even in drag racing, there are those two types of photographers, and I see it. And and I'm good friends with both sides of that. Now, you did mention something a little while ago when we talked about newbies or, or some of the younger photographers in this industry, the branding aspect of it. God love them. You are obviously on the forefront. You were one of, for you know disclosure purposes, Mark has been um, part of the uh, E3 Extreme um, company for almost since its inception as far as being a supporter and the first yearly brander that we had on 
any of our stuff. Obviously, Ellen and I started doing that almost six years ago. And now it seems like every photographer is well, trying to do what... And I'm not saying that we were the first ones to ever put a logo on a photo. No, but the, the business model, uh, you know, the advertising model made sense. It's kind of like social media, you mm -hmm. know. The advertising model was the most obvious way that you take this thing that that this unruly sort of thing and nobody can figure out how to make money with it will fucking advertise on it. I mean, and so you're going to the racetrack and you're covering these events and you're putting out all this work and you're, you know, you've got all this coverage, the most natural path, you know, the easiest, you know, path of least resistance is somebody would pay to put their name on these 750 photographs because there are at least a gazillion people that are going to thumb through this gallery and look at these pictures. It makes sense. As and, a, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not angry at the kids or I don't mean it to sound like I'm yeah. bitter. I like, I'm fuck it. If they can get people to pay them to go to the racetrack and take pictures, that's great. Go do it. Um, but I think, you know, what I'm saying to them is if you're going to take their money, if you're going to slap their logo on that shit and you're going to go out there, you have a professional responsibility to go out there and put like, throw the fuck down, like put some shit on the internet that breaks the internet. Like if you don't have the photo that breaks the internet, go the fuck back home and practice until you can get the one that breaks the internet. You've been listening to Scorched, Scorched. Raw, Raw. Real. Real, and Unfiltered. Join us next time when Damon scorches it all again to find previous episodes, news, commentary, and event coverage. Head to E3 Extreme. There is no one better.